Hi, everybody, and welcome to your SWARP MCME podcast. Today, we're going to be going through the questions that you submitted through your online pre-course. This is Lauren Valdis, Medical Director of Education here, and with me is Gabby Willems, our Education Coordinator here at SWARP. Good morning, Gabby. Good morning, everyone. Looking forward to working through all of the questions that you submitted this year together. So this year, we're going to go through the questions similar to how we did last year. So Gabby's going to go ahead and read out the questions that you submitted, and I'm going to go ahead and answer them. All right. Well, let's get going with our first question here. So first question is related to the COVID restrictions. So in the hyperkalemia section um, during the COVID review, it spoke to if administering salbutamol for moderate to severe shortness of breath. However, we do not administer salbutamol for moderate or severe shortness of breath in the hyperkalemia directive. This likely will cause some confusion with some of the ACPs. Is it possible to clarify this? So thank you very much for that question. Certainly we understand that with the COVID considerations and the changes back and forth, we've been obviously quite dynamic with this pandemic. So the first thing is that salbutamol in the hyperkalemia medical directive for the ACPs can still be given. Now, of course, that's an MDI form, not in nebulized form. The second thing to note is now that we have the most recent update, so version 6, which came out in October 2021, the considerations now state that you can consider either using the COVID consideration alterations or your regular ALS-PCS medical directives. So to go back to your question, you can consider to use salbutamol under either form of the COVID considerations or the regular ALS-PCS, but when it comes to the hyperkalemia medical directive, the salbutamol can be used and it's not for the respiratory consideration as listed in the original considerations document. Again, thank you for that question, and we know it's confusing with all the changes. Okay, moving on to the next question here. This question has to do with the AHA guidelines that were reviewed in the pre-course material of MCME this year. So the current AHA guidelines do not seem to support the use of back blows for conscious choking adults, yet... This is often taught in Red Cross or St. John Ambulance courses. Is there a disparity between the current teaching? All right. So this one is a little bit controversial. We cannot speak to the teaching of other courses. However, the suggestion for abdominal compressions as the technique of choice is highlighted in the 2010 AHA guidelines, which say that although chest thrusts, back slaps, and abdominal thrusts are feasible and effective for relieving severe foreign body airway obstruction in conscious, so responsive, adults and children greater than one years of age, for simplicity in training, it is recommended that abdominal thrusts be applied in rapid sequence until the obstruction is relieved. And this is a class 2B level of evidence B recommendation. So we would suggest then for the AHA guidelines, which state that they recommend the abdominal thrust to be applied in these conscious adults and children greater than one. Awesome. So we have another question regarding those AHA guidelines. So I recently read about recommendations for the use of the distal femur as an alternative IO access site specifically in pediatrics. Is this being considered as an option in Ontario? So that's fantastic that you're hearing about the different sites that can be used. And there are numerous locations that have been described for IO insertion in both the adult and pediatric populations. Each site has their own differing success rates and complications. The two most widely studied locations in the pediatric population are the tibia and the humerus. 
Given the current literature, medical counselor endorses these two locations for IO access, so the tibia and the humeral site. Great, thanks Lauren. Um, and another question about the AHA guidelines. Is the post-resuscitative performance review mandatory? And if so, does talking through the process with your partner fulfill this obligation? All right, so there is no mandate per se within the BLSPCS or ALSPCS for this. However, we believe that this process can be very impactful and help improve performance. From the 2020 guidelines, post-event debriefing is defined as a discussion between two or more individuals in which aspects of performance are analyzed with the goal of improving future clinical practice. Therefore, discussing with your partner or anyone who is present for that resuscitation would count. This can occur immediately or at a later time. The key point is that you're reflecting on the event and thinking about how future events could potentially be improved. Awesome. Thanks for that clarification. No problem. All right. So the next question we had coming in was related to the capnography pre-course module. So the person wrote in because they had difficulty coming up with one of the answers for the quiz questions. The very last question displayed a capnograph which had a low untitled reading with a high resp rate. And the question was, what physiologic event does this represent? And the options were hyperventilation, hypoperfusion, DKA, or sepsis? And the answer was all of the above. Now, the person was a bit confused about how we got to that answer and didn't understand how both hyperventilation and hypoventilation could be part of the same answer. Could you provide us some clarity, please, Lauren? Absolutely. And I know that throughout the capnography presentation, which had some excellent, excellent content in there, there was lots of back and forth. So I think maybe what happened is the answer was misread as hypoventilation instead of what was written, which was hypoperfusion. So we're going to put a screenshot of this quiz question as part of the resources on the podcast page so you can reference this and see it with your own eyeballs. But just like Gabby mentioned, it was a low amplitude, so end-tidal CO2 of 24 with a high respiratory rate. And so the answer was all of hyperventilation, because it was fast, hypoperfusion, because the end-tidal CO2 reading was low, DKA, because DKA is a potential cause of hypoperfusion, and the hyperventilation as you're trying to breathe off that metabolic acidosis. And the answer was also sepsis, so for the same reason that metabolic acidosis, which is a hypoperfusion state, can cause a increase in your respiratory rate as you're trying to breathe off that CO2. So that's why this very complicated question was all of hyperventilation, hypoperfusion, DKA, and sepsis. And this question really goes to show just how much information you can obtain from your capnography and why we really highlighted that this year. Okay, great. Thanks, Lauren. I think that provides a lot of clarity to that question. So someone else had a different question regarding the capnography module. And the question was, do you recommend using a C-collar in patients who have an advanced airway, either an SGA or uh, are intubated, in order to prevent tube displacement? Awesome. Thanks, Gabby. And that's an excellent question. So SWARP absolutely endorses paramedics utilizing resources to assist with securing the advanced airway. There are various means by which this advanced airway can be secured. We'll leave it to you and your clinical judgment to decide what is best in the situation. 
We do advocate that once an advanced airway is secure, it's important to remember to confirm placement after every movement, because after every movement of that patient, that airway can move. So that's where looking at that untitled CO2 after any movement is the gold standard to ensure that that advanced airway has not become displaced. Okay, wonderful review. Thanks, Lauren. And I love this last question that came through for the capnography module. And it's so simple, but I think it really helps to get this refresher. What is capnography? Awesome. All right. So by definition, capnography is the measurement of CO2 in exhaled air. So this provides an objective measure of ventilation. Okay, great. Thanks. And that's directly applicable to our practice. Absolutely. So moving on to the bundle branch blocks module here, the question we received is, could you provide some clarification about what the RSR is and what it represents? Absolutely. So uh, before I go any further, I'm going to mention that there is a tip of the week on this very subject that you can check out for a visual. And we'll also include this tip of the week link in our resources in the podcast page. That way you can easily see with your own eyeballs what we mean. But to give you the audio version of that, RSR is a QRS complex with an R wave, so that upward deflection first, followed by an S wave, so a downward deflection second, followed by another R wave, so a second upward deflection. So instead of a QRS complex where you see Q downwards, R upwards, S upwards, you see RSR. So R upwards, S downwards, R upwards. So this pattern is seen particularly in lead V1 in right bundle branch blocks. Woo, mouthful. You're not going to believe that, but this was actually, I think, our third take of me saying that. So right bundle branch block V1 RSR. And again, check out both our tip of the week as well as the resources page for the podcast for the eyeball visual. Okay, so circling back to a question regarding the AHA guidelines and naloxone administration, the person submitting the question highlighted that the AHA guidelines indicated that naloxone may be administered as long as the guidelines for CPR are being adequately met. Um, Given this point, our current medical directives indicate that there isn't a clear role for routine administration of naloxone in a confirmed cardiac arrest. Could you please clarify whether we should or shouldn't be moving forward with naloxone in a VSA patient who's an obvious opioid overdose? Absolutely. And thank you very much for the question. So SWARP MAC is providing guidance that it's acceptable to give naloxone in these situations as long as other aspects of care are effectively delivered prior to taking the time to administer naloxone. So administration of naloxone should not be the priority in cardiac arrest management, nor should you receive any auditing feedback if it's not administered in these cases. Just as a side note, there is a new ALS-PCS version 4.9 coming out. The opioid toxicity medical directive has been altered just slightly with a couple nuances, which you would have seen from reading the memo on the PPO. However, a note that the medical cardiac arrest medical directive, wherein this wording is still in place. So the wording that you mentioned here, that there's no clear rule for routine administration of naloxone and confirmed cardiac arrest, is still in play in the latest version of the ALS PCS 4.9. But the overall principle is that resuscitation 
what we know works should come first if you have the ability to give naloxone in these patients that it is acceptable to do so. Okay, great. I think that provides a lot of clarity. Thanks, Lauren. No problem. So we have a couple of questions regarding emergency childbirth that Ooh. we'll dive into here. So the first question is related to a specific scenario. So if mom is having an active postpartum hemorrhage, however, the neonate is stable, could we consider leaving the neonate on scene with dad and call for a second unit in order to get mom to the hospital? Or do we have to wait until the arrival of the second unit as this person wasn't aware if there were any policies on this practice? All right. This is obviously a very difficult situation and a, a tough question to answer. I'll preface this that there is actually an Ask Mac where this question is highlighted that should be posted now as well. But to give you the audio version, there are multiple variables, so service-specific policies, family comfort, refusal of transport, backup availability, resources at play. So obviously not every situation is going to be the same. This makes this a very difficult question for a medical counsel to generate one answer that fits all possible scenarios. It can be difficult to make decisions in situations that are unique. Therefore, supervisors and or the BHP may be of value to assist with figuring out a plan that ensures the patient needs are best met. Your clinical judgment will likely weigh heavily into the advice or support provided. So that all can be summed up with ask for resources and help. And there's no clear one answer based on all the variables at play. Yes, we know that uh, paramedic practice can is often playing in the gray zone. And this is one of those other situations where we land there. Absolutely. Another question regarding emergency childbirth, and this one came up fairly frequently during our live MCME sessions this year. So could you please clarify what the paramedic should do if a midwife requests the paramedics transfer to the birthing facility, if the birthing facility is not the closest facility to the patient? How should they go about navigating this problem? All right. Well, this one is fortunately less gray. <laughs> so in situations whereby a destination agreement does not exist, you should follow your service and hospital bypass agreements. The Ambulance Act legislation does not give the authority to a physician or other healthcare professional like a midwife to direct ambulance traffic. Only the CAC can direct ambulance traffic outside of a destination or bypass agreement. Paramedic services have ongoing dialogue with hospitals regarding destination agreements. The base hospital provides advice to both parties during these conversations in regards to agreements that are medically safe and in the best interest of the patient. But the bottom line is, in this situation, if a midwife is telling you to go somewhere where there's no service agreement, then you go to the closest hospital. Okay, thanks so much. No problem. So we have a follow-up question about neonatal resuscitations, and someone was reviewing the content that was put together outside of the MCME, some of the voluntary stuff. So the question is, after 30 seconds of room air ventilations and baby's heart rate is still under 60, the video states to start from the top. But I thought we would continue down the algorithm to immediately begin chest compressions with O2 BVM ventilations. Looking for some clarification here. Thank you. All right. So yes, you should follow the algorithm. So if, if after the first 30 seconds of positive pressure ventilation on room air, the baby's not breathing on their own and not supporting a heart rate of greater than or equal to 60, you're going to continue on down your algorithm and initiate CPR and add 100% O2 to your positive pressure ventilation. So I think 
maybe what happened is the optional video on the PPO takes you through the algorithm twice. Maybe you misheard that starting from the top on that second loop through. So bottom line is follow that algorithm. Okay, great. Thank you. And our last question here, again, jumping back to those AHA guidelines that we reviewed. If studies show that administering epinephrine during a cardiac arrest improves the chances of ROSC and surviving to hospital discharge, should SWARP consider adding it to the PCP scope of practice? All right. So the OBEG MAC, so all the provincial uh, heads of the base hospitals, are constantly reviewing the most recent evidence and applying it to pre-hospital care by optimizing the medical directives and advocating for change from the ministry. The evidence to date on epinephrine has not been robust and is certainly not set in stone. However, should there continue to be evidence to show benefit for its use, the OBEG MAC will campaign to the ministry to have it included province-wide. So stay tuned. We need a little bit more information before we make this change. Well, thanks so much, Lauren. And if anybody else has any further questions that they'd like to submit regarding the MCME content or to Mac, please do so using our Ask Mac process on the website. Thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for all the wonderful work you do in our region. Thanks, everybody. Stay safe. Take care. Bye.